Hi, this is Gonzalo, and you're listening to the Progression Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. I'm Neil, co-founder and CTO here at Progression. And today I'm with Gonzalo Silva, CTO at Doist. Doist is a really interesting organization. Their main product, Todoist, actually started as a side project of Amir, the founder, back in 2007. Today, they're nearly 100 people distributed across the globe. Around a year ago, they rolled out their first framework. In this conversation, I really get into the strategy and tactics behind creating that framework and rolling it out to the team. We touch on some really interesting subjects, like how do you roll out a framework to a distributed team? How do you avoid any surprises? And how do you make sure that you have a diverse range of voices that cover the full spectrum of cultures and ways of thinking at your company? Hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, let's start the show. Gonzalo, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking some time out to talk about framework, technology, and leadership. It's great to have you here. Hi, Neil. So glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, no worries. So people may not know who Doist are, and I was doing a bit of uh, due diligence prior to recording this podcast, and I knew that you guys were interesting. But I didn't realize how interesting that you're almost 100 people, fully distributed, fully bootstrapped, and you've created an amazing place to work, 40 days paid time off. It looks like a terrific place and it looks like a fascinating company. And I've actually shifted my personal to-do list from paper to to-doist about a month ago when things things got too complex to handle on paper. So I'd love to hear a little bit about Doist and about yourself and how you came to be CTO there. Doist, most people know Doist via Todoist. It's our most popular application. It's been around for many years. It has a very strong user base. So the, the key thing about Doist is we've grown quite slowly over many years. So we like to say that we're in it for the long run, that we optimize always for you know the long haul. And I think this translates to our history even. So Todoist has been available now for 13 years. That seems insane by today's standards, but it's true. Uh, it was originally a side project of Amir, the founder, and about three to four years in, he realized he had something on his hands. So he created that for himself, and then it was the typical network effect, starting with friends. Friends wanted to use his app. Then some key people like Koi, you know, the famous designer from New York Times. And then the network just expanded and expanded. And around 2011, he realized he had a big opportunity on his hands with this side project. And initially, he wanted to work with freelancers. So he wanted to kind of like retain full control of his application and then just hire freelancers to do very specific pieces of work. This is interesting because I think the fully distributed history starts here. Because he started from the beginning working with people all across the globe on very specific pieces of work to push Todoist forward. But then he went into this, bumped into this problem that, you know, if you hire a freelancer to do a job, there's not that much skin in the game, right? Like they're, they're not working in the company. They don't own any stock. They don't owe you anything except for the work they've been hired to do. So he shifted his mindset into actually building a team, building a company. This is, by the way, where I come in. I was one of those early freelancers. And he just remained fully distributed. Actually, a lot of the early people were the early freelancers, so to speak. Initially, I was hired 
more specifically to build the Android app for Todoist over six months, roughly. And then I just joined the company to kind of like continue building it, maintaining it as an employee. So that's where I joined. And that's also the origin of Doist as kind of accidental, fully distributed team from the get-go. And then, of course, we had to learn a lot of things over time as we scaled. This was never very intentional, I think, from the beginning. Like we never wanted to build a big company and a massively successful app. We were just doing something we really enjoyed and tried to sharing it with the world. And so... For example, one day when I got an email from Amir saying, hey, we're growing the company. We need, I think we need some leadership. Do you want to lead the Android team? There's two of you. Uh, there's probably going to be three very soon. I was like, really? I was not expecting this email. So we weren't even thinking about these things early on, you know. But I mean, over time, we've, we've grown uh, quite significantly. As you said, we're almost 100 people all across the globe. And... We also introduced Twist about three years ago. It's our take on team communication. We basically did the whole rodeo of Slack and, and so on, and we were fairly frustrated with that. So uh, we kind of like tried to bring our own approach to the world. Yeah, and nowadays we're still building Todoist. We still have a lot of ambitious plans there, and we're trying to get some product market fit for Twist. And I guess Something else that's interesting about Doist is, you also alluded to this before, is how we're trying to approach building the company. So we build tools for people to have a great work-life balance. That's why, how we like to think about it, you know, tools for the, the future of the workplace. And we also try to have an amazing company to work for. And this translates into, you know, a lot of autonomy for the people who work at Doist reasonable expectations for the work that they do, such as 40-hour weeks and not an hour more, 40 days off per year, as you said. By the way, this was our way of dealing with the craziness that's like national holidays across the globe. Like in some places you have like five days per year, some others you have like 30, not 30, but actually 20 something. And we were like, how do we handle this in a fair way? So we would just instituted 40 paid days off and then people can just use them however they want so we really try to build a place for adults <laughs> happy adults <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's fascinating and that organic evolution into being a disputed team from working with freelancers sort of explains how you think as of this being distributed as the norm before we started recording we just touched on Sort of how could frameworks be different for distributed teams versus co-located teams? And you have an opinion on that, which we'll get into a bit later. Yeah. And so this, it sounds like at the company, you have some strong opinions around work-life balance and intentionally building the company that you want to work for. Does that extend into sort of team learning, growth and development? Do you have sort of a specific way that you, you think about that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, something we have, I guess a lot of companies have this too, but we have our own set of core values and we have intentionally kept it very small. So at some point we had 12, 13, I, I don't even remember, but then we would be talking to people or on a podcast like this and I wouldn't be able to tell you the 12 values. So at some point we did decide to trim that down to five. So something everybody can know by heart in any situation. And that really translates to everything else we do. The workplace we're trying to build, all of the policies, all of the, you know, um, there's always some structure to building a company, but we try to always do that based off of those five core values. And one of them is what we call ambition and balance, which basically means having a very 
very strong work-life balance, but also very high intensity. So high intensity in work, high intensity in rest. Basically, that's what that means. And we really try to live by that core value too. So when I was thinking about how to structure this conversation, first, I really wanted to talk about your experience with frameworks because you've recently rolled, well, been through the process of creating a framework and rolling that out to the team. And I thought it'd be really interesting to think about it at the strategic level of sort of what were the drivers at the, the leadership business executive level, and then look at some of the tactics and perhaps as something for our listeners, they might find immediately useful because they're in the exact same position that you were in 12 months ago or 18 months ago. So I'd love to start by maybe going back in time before you had a defined framework and thinking about what led you to create a framework in the first place. Were there signs that this was something that was lacking? How did you know you needed to create one? People asked for it, interestingly. So something that I guess could be mistake number one, hopefully this is useful for other people. Uh, it took us quite a long time to roll this out. And to be honest, almost three years. And I think we spent the first few months uh, a bit puzzled. So the truth was that the newer people in the company, the people who were seeing things with fresh eyes, they were asking for more direction. They were asking for more transparency into the expectations of, you know, what kind of behaviors do you want to do you want to encourage how do they level up how does the company see them in their role and for people who had been in the company for longer throughout all of those stages you know 10 people 20 people 30 people i think for a few months we were a bit puzzled like why would we need this right like we never needed this why would we need this now so it took us a bit of time to realize how important this was and how newer people had a more fresh perspective than ours were not aware of all the implicit expectations that we, that we had going around. So that step uh, of realizing this was important was actually externally led. So people asked for this, basically. First, there were the indirect questions such as, how do I know what the company expects for me in my role? Besides the very obvious things. These were the indirect questions. And then at some point, we have even direct questions such as, when can we have a career path <laughs> to, to kind of like follow and grow? So this, unfortunately, was not very strategical from our part. We were responding to demand and actually took us a long time to nail this, as I was saying before. We went through about three major iterations before we had something we were happy with. And again, I, I also think this stems from two things. One is not being strategical about this. It's not like we started from a place where we knew exactly what we wanted. We were still figuring out what actually what Dewisters wanted. How could we serve them with this framework? And another one, which I guess could be a small piece of advice for other people thinking about this, was not having clear ownership over this task. So in the beginning, we didn't have somebody who was clearly responsible for doing a bit of research, talking to people in the industry and at Doist and coming up with a draft for what would become our framework. I did a bit of work on this. Our CEO, Alan, also did a bit, a bit of work on this, but it was all very unstructured and volunteer-based, and that really does not work. <laughs> Career paths are very tricky. They mess with people's expectations. They mess with people's lives. So you need somebody leading this that has accountability, that has agency to make the changes and that feels the responsibility for the task. And I guess we did this, but only in the last year. 
So in the last year, we realized this and we had Mitch from our people ops team just lead the whole effort. And it was amazing. It was an amazing. That's so but interesting. Overall, Sorry, I was just going to say that that. So the, the way you dealt with it first of taking on taking it on or various people taking on almost as a side project, but that it's such a foundational piece of infrastructure for managing people that actually it needs yeah. to be treated as a project within itself. So I suppose exactly. when you brought in people ops, was that as a sort of defined project for them to work on with, with sort of quarterly goals around it? Or how, how was that structured? Yeah, definitely not quarterly goals. We work on a monthly basis. And the thing we did was the reason PeopleOps didn't own this project from the get-go was that our PeopleOps team was fairly small compared to the rest of the company. So they were, they are frequently overloaded with work. And in that particular time, we were hiring a ton. So there was a lot of work around hiring, onboarding people. So there was just no bandwidth to do this. But there was pressure from the rest of the company to get this going. So that's why it was not an explicit task. So what we did was actually expand the team a little bit. We hired Mitch around that time. And his first project was to conduct this over roughly nine months on basically monthly deliverables. That's our work cycles for the whole company, including people ops. This episode of the Progression Podcast is brought to you by Progression User Research. Here at Progression, we're on a mission to build software that helps people to grow and that they love to use. To do that, we need to talk with team members, with managers, with HR folks to really understand what they want to do and how they want to do it. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to progressionapp.com research and in return for your time, you'll receive a first edition Progression t-shirt. Back to the show. And so I can see having that one person driving the project forward is really valuable in terms of the momentum of it as an endeavor. One thing about frameworks is that they're often split into generic or transferable skills and then domain-specific skills. So did you find that, for example, for the engineering team, that there was input required from people with specialist knowledge? Yes, absolutely. Actually, we got a lot of inputs and after we were done, we would st we were still tweaking the knobs to make sure it was applicable to everybody because the way we try to navigate that aspect of the generalist and the specialist, you kind of like have both on the table, is we really try to think about foundational behaviors and have a more general framework, I guess, than would be expected. So for example, an example I can give is in the first draft of the engineering framework, we had some notes about code reviews. Uh, this is something engineers do a lot. And I guess when you're working in a, in a distributed team, this is kind of like very core to the, the, the workflow. But our operations team would be, you know, would talk about, we don't actually do that many code reviews because we don't deal as much with code as regular engineers. So we actually switched that over to peer reviews. And now it's about reviewing anything. Could be code, could be documents, could be just brainstorming, you know, reviewing an idea, so to speak. So overall, we try to generalize the things that are important for the teams and make it applicable for everybody. I guess this makes the framework a little less objective than it could be. But at the same time, we want to, you know, this leeway to exist because we want people to take the framework and adapt it to, to their personalities, to the things that they enjoy, to the things that they're good at. We're trying to make sure that the mold is not too strict. And so this really helps focusing on really the foundational behaviors. That process you 
talked about around the operations team feeling actually these skills aren't quite right for us. Did you have a sort of formal feedback process around that or a request for feedback process? Or did you just let that happen organically? Both. So there are multiple stages to this. So something we did was we always iterated in public. So even before we deployed this, all of the work being done was public. So everybody who was interested in it, who had, you know, were more curious about how things were going, they could go in and comment and add inputs. And this happened quite a lot. Another thing we did was do a test run. So when we felt we were close to a complete package, we would ask some people and actually put them through the framework. So kind of like go over it with them. This was basically a trial run, but we were kind of like pretending it was the real deal. And we collected a lot of feedback from these trial runs. And then by the end, something else we did was for every single person going through the framework in the company, we go all over all of these skills and, and, and then there's a second step. We can talk about it a little bit more later, but there's a second step about the improvement plan that stems from this and so on. But there is one explicit section, which is feedback about the framework. And every single person going through the framework kind of like goes through this. So what kind of feedback can we provide about the framework around our own experience? And we are really trying to accommodate as much feedback as we can. And this might seem like a first time thing, but actually I think it's way better to think about it as just part of the system. Like every year you ask for feedback, every year you make adjustments. So the framework is never really done. It's evolving with the company, evolving with the people, evolving with our goals. That's such an important point. I think very often frameworks are created and then we think, okay, job done. I've made my framework when actually, no, that framework needs to grow and adapt with the team and you're going to keep getting feedback on it and you need to keep tweaking it, adjusting it. Have you been through the first cycle of of feedback from using it in the wild? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we did the first real run, you know, 80 plus people back in November. So, and we collected all of the feedback there. We also distilled the feedback into common threads that we need to improve. And we're at the point where, you know, basically slowly working into incorporating these in the framework so that come next November, we're ready for another batch of grow-centered conversations and with all of the feedback built in. Were there any surprises in the feedback? That is a great question. I think so, yes. Like, I guess the, the feedback can be surprising in many ways. I think something that surprised me was how conflicting some of the feedback can be. Like, you know, some people want things maybe a bit more general, others more specific, and then, you know, finding common ground can become very tricky. But overall, I think, but overall, actually, I would say no. I would say that we read most of the feedback that people have given and we were like, oh, right, you're right. Like, this makes total sense. So it feels like these are great pieces of feedback based on insight from growing through the framework that actually makes us a little bit sad. Like, why didn't we think of this? This makes total sense, right? So I guess the surprises were more around the conflicts and catering to everybody's needs can be tricky. And I guess this will be even trickier in larger companies and as we grow. So you bring in people ops, Mitch leads the charge, spends nine months creating the framework and you do some pilots on it. You run it past some members of your team to, to get some early feedback and then you add those improvements in. When it was ready, how did you handle the rollout? Because frameworks are a big deal. People can all of a sudden 
realize that they are perhaps not performing as well as they might think they are, or they're performing better than they might think they are. There may be elements of imposter syndrome that, oh, goodness me, I'm never going to be able to get to that level. Did you have any special process around the rollout of this? And how did you communicate it with the whole team? Yeah. So I, I think something that was key for us is what I mentioned a little earlier, like just working very transparently was important. So for example, this framework was developed roughly during nine months with all of those stages that you mentioned, but not only was all of the work public, every month was there was like a status update for the whole company. Like this is how the project is doing. This is how much we've evolved over the last month. Just making sure everybody was in the loop about the goals. The goals changed a little bit throughout the process and what the status was. Something else we did also was we try to not focus on performance, maybe as much as a traditional framework. We put a lot of focus on specific skills, things like, as I mentioned before, peer reviews or knowledge sharing, let's say. We try to document how these behaviors could look like in a high level way, but then we just focus on how well people are doing within these skills, not necessarily as an you know historical assessment of uh, performance, but actually more it's actually more individual-led. So all of these, we call them grow conversations because they're centered around growth. And something I think which is quite interesting is they start with a self-assessment. So people will look at the framework, they will self-assess, they will look at kind of like this description of the skills and they will try to place themselves. And then they will kind of like align with their manager. This is how their manager sees them. And something that I'm very proud of is that many of these assessments were neither what the person was seeing, but neither what the manager was seeing either. So there was some alignment and everybody learned something from the process. And I think this alignment of expectations is actually a great tool to combat things like the imposter syndrome, because it's, I guess it's inevitable, it's not a cure, but if you know that the way you see your own progress is similar to the way your manager sees it, so that there are no inconsistencies, no mismatch of expectations, you are in a much better place, you're more comfortable because there are less unknowns for you. So that's something we really try to focus on. Not making it top-down, not making it to focus on performance and past assessments, historical assessment of performance, but more specific skills because you know skills are the traits that bring the results. So we try to focus on the skills and make it as much individual-led as possible. By the way, this extends to the improvement plan. As I mentioned before, after this process of self-assessments and then the manager assessment and then the alignment, there is a development plan based on this. So, And this is almost 99% led by the individual. So the manager will just say, that sounds good. <laughs> and well, the manager is mostly a sounding board for this. Like, you know, if maybe there is a one specific part of the improvement plan that doesn't make much sense. And the manager will call this out and say, hey, this doesn't seem like it will actually bring you closer to the next level of this skill, right? So, but it's purely individual-led. And I think this is paramount to making something that works for people because basically they are creating their own development plan based on the skills. And I got a little bit lost here, but I think this answers kind of like the question of how do we roll it out? We basically give as much autonomy to the people as possible within the plan. And we think this is a great way to just make it more comfortable from the get-go because people have more control over their own growth. 
And that working in the open is really interesting as well because that stops it being this big reveal of, okay, you, you know something's been going on for a few months and here it is. It's like actually they can see it in progress. And out of interest, is that typical of the way that Doist work? I know companies like GitLab pride themselves on having everything that can possibly be open, open. Is that something at, at Doist or is it something you just chose to do for the framework process? No, no, no. It's definitely something we do quite often. And I guess this is quite specific to distributed teams. Working in the open is something that I think benefits all companies. But I really think if you want to have a distributed company that's healthy, that has a good team feeling, a good team culture that's sustainable in long term, you really need to embrace the transparency, just working in the open, being vulnerable. We do keep very, very few conversations private. And it's it's very, it's really the exception to the rule. And we're always thinking, can this be public? And if yes, let's make it public, just move. It doesn't mean we have to notify everybody, right? Sure. Like it doesn't mean to go out and ping everybody about something very specific you might be doing. Maybe people are not interested, but if they look for it, they should be able to find it. And that's how we approach the whole career development topic. Right. And going back to the grow conversations and the PDPs that you create, what's the cadence for that happening? Is that an annual event where they happen or do the frameworks get used more frequently in one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations? Yeah, it's, it, there is an annual event, which are basically the placements, right? Like this, it's when you do the self-assessments, when you align uh, with the other people, in, with your manager, basically. But there is a quarterly cadence to these meetings. So at least people can have these more often if they want. That's another thing that's quite flexible. But at least there's a quarterly conversation going over basically the personal development plan. Like where do we stand? If the manager can help the person achieve some of their goals, if they can help them unblock. So we have these checkpoints throughout the years. That's at least every quarter, though I know some of the people I do is start doing them more frequently, like every six weeks. I've also heard about this. So there's quite a bit of flexibility there, but we want to make sure that there is no radio silence from one year to the other, because that's, again, if we do that, we're kind of like misaligning again. Like the, my, I feel like the whole point of, of what we're doing is just aligning expectations, aligning how we see each other, just making sure it's very clear from one to the other, like there's a lot of trusts around this. And if we disconnect from the process for a whole year, there's some likelihood that we'll just kind of like misalign all over again. And then the, the alignment process is more, you know, more elaborate mm. than it should. Right. One question that comes up, which I think is really interesting, is the relationship between compensation and frameworks and levels and performance. I noticed when I was browsing the Doist uh, career section that you talk about having a uh, almost like an algorithm for determining compensation based on location and level. Has the framework been an extra tool for that? Does that sort of help those decisions around compensation? Yes. So we're currently, we have a salary formula. As you described, there's kind of like an algorithm. We just, you know, turn the knobs and it will kind of like output a number. This has helped us in numerous ways, namely feeling like we have a somewhat fair system that is not very, you know, you can't game it as much. Some people are obviously better negotiators than, than others, but we don't really have to deal with this because we don't negotiate salaries. We try to keep it very objective. Mm -hmm. But I must say we are, this is a, a point where I don't think we have it all figured out just yet because it feels 
as it stands in some ways, it feels conflicting. So, because on one hand, we have this framework that is very focused on growth, right? Like it's individual led, it's focused on growth. It's not as much focused on results as it is focused on skills. And so it's connection to salary, especially if it's a significant connection, which it is our case right now, uh, sometimes can feel like it's conflicting motives, so to speak. So the incentive we want to have for the framework, we want it to be 99.9% just, you know, our sheer will to grow and be better over yeah. time. But there is a compensation aspect to it as well. So, and there's other, around this topic, there's other things I think we still need to figure out, such as if you are going to tie to compensation, should you focus more on impact, like specific projects, specific deliverables, because those are the things that ultimately drive the company forward revenue wise, user wise. So right. also putting too much focus on the skills, they are super important, but for the compensation, which is derived from the company performance, maybe these are not, it's not the best proxy. So these are all questions we still have floating, but personally, I feel like we are missing a piece from this puzzle where yes, we look at the individual skills, we call it mastery. We look at the mastery and it's very individual led, but we also should be looking at specific projects and the specific impact that people are having on the bottom line of the company. If we want to make it a complete package that ties into the salary formula. So I, I'd, I'd say in this regard, we're only kind of like halfway there. Right. And it's such a challenge with sales. It can be quite obvious what the impact on the company is with engineering. It can be less. So you roll the dice, you get allocated to a project that perhaps never makes it out of the prototype stage or the MVP stage. How do you quantify that as impact? It can be, it's tough. Yeah, it's quite tricky. And some of the engineering roles can be very invisible. You know, it's not uncommon to have an infrastructure engineer who nobody knows their name, but they have a higher impact on the bottom line than some vice president, just because they keep the systems healthy and running and performant. It's, right. you know, a lot of work, it's very invisible. So it's, it's, it's easy to ignore or just not value as highly as other types of work right for sure when they're exceeding at their job absolutely nothing happens the website's available 24 7 and yeah. nobody notices yeah great so i'd love to shift gears a little bit and go from the strategic side down into the tactics into the into the weeds of the framework and one place i'd like to start with this is Around the considerations for distributed teams, we're recording this in January 2021. Here in the UK, we are right in the middle of the second or third wave. It's grim. People are tired of working from home. Over the last 12 months, a lot of, well, almost every company has ad hoc switched to working remotely or distributed or WFP, working from pandemic, is one version of it that I heard. So I think coming at it from the angle of remote or, or distributed might be quite interesting for a lot of our listeners. At Doist, you've been remote since the very first day. So it's almost like it's totally normal for you and actually has no impact. Before we started recording, I, I mentioned that I have this idea that perhaps when people are co-located, that there's this process of osmosis, that as a junior engineer, I can observe a senior engineer or a tech lead, I can observe how they handle one-on-one -on -one conversations, or I can observe how they interact with other people in the organization. 
there might be water cooler conversations around bits and pieces. And so there is a way that you can sort of get this idea of what good looks like for different positions without it having to be documented in a Google Sheet. Do you feel like you have to take any extra special steps as a distributed team to communicate what good looks like for these different skills? Yes and no. So I definitely think we do. I think though the things we do would be healthy for any company. So the, the thing I want to bring out about this is the topic of transparency again. So sure, we have uh, meetings, we have one-on-ones. These things aren't public, although in complicated companies, usually they aren't public either. What we try to make sure is that we work as much as possible. We communicate as much as possible in the you know public open threads. You know, for example, in for developers, our GitHub, all of the developers have access to all of the repositories. Maybe it's read-only access, but they do. They can see the issues, they can see the pull requests, they can see the evolution of code over time. They are, we try to keep silos very small and almost eliminate them. Now, there is an effort to this, especially when people join. Like, imagine uh, you have a question about a topic. It's just so easy to go into the DMs of somebody and just ask. And they will reply to you in real time, but in private, and you right. lose this. So just getting people into that rhythm of, no, just open a thread. Like, open a thread. Like, we have a lot of threads. They're all public. They're all topic-focused. But just open a thread, even if it's just a simple question. It might take you a little bit longer to get a reply, but it's going to be documented, right? So for the future, you can revisit this. Other people can revisit this. And I think this approach that is very much very strongly open and transparent really helps with that effect. Like there's, you know, digital osmosis because you can see your colleagues interacting around specific topics. You can see most of this happening out there. It's public throughout the company. And it's a joy to see when people jump into unrelated conversations just because they read something interesting or they have a follow-up question. So they weren't even notified to begin with, but they saw it, they kind of like followed it and then they have a question or they want to participate. So I think it's crucial to follow this model. GitLab does this as successfully as you said, but just overall making things as transparent as possible, even if when there is a cost. And sometimes there is a cost because, you know, just shooting a DM is quite trivial and uh, getting a re- reply back, but it does not help you in the future. It does not document that interaction. It does not document that information you were looking for. So it's a hugely missed opportunity. And I think that's where lies most of our effort is just there is a lot of work that's done behind the scenes in most companies, and we, we fight very hard against this. And when people join Duis, they feel a little bit puzzled by this. You know, you know, don't DM as much. Just talk in the open. Document it. Look at, as, at it as an opportunity to document uh, the thing you were looking for. So you didn't know, other people won't know in the future. So if you ask, then they can search and find it, right? So, but again, like... Isn't this something that's useful for most companies? I would definitely argue so. It sounds like it to me. And I think that's really interesting when you see a framework as just a natural extension of working in the open. It's like everything else is documented. Why wouldn't the framework be documented? And it's also here. Are there any particular tools that you use to facilitate, I suppose, not just the framework, but generally how you communicate in the open? We use Twist. So I guess that's surprising. I think the, the three main tools we use to communicate is definitely Twist. We try to use Twist as much as possible. 
not only because we built it and it's just the way we want it to be, but also because its structure is kind of like optimized, I think, for a lot of the things we discussed, like the, there are threads, the threads are topic focused. There's some interesting tooling around this, such as, you know, resolving discussions when you have a conclusion to something, for example. It's something we don't use everywhere, but sometimes it's useful. Uh, so you don't have to read the whole things. You can just, you know, read the, almost the title and the conclusion and you have an overview of what the discussion was, for example. But we also have a lot of discussions going on in GitHub for two reasons. Obviously, we're a tech company. Half of the company are engineers. So there's a lot of code and code-related discussions. And obviously, we prefer discussing technical things near the code. So we don't try to force a square peg through a round hole in this case. There is another thing to this, which is our handbook. We have a handbook internally. It's basically, again, this is inspired by GitLab, actually. We have an internal uh, handbook of a lot of things, historical decisions, the principles, the frameworks, our processes. We try to document everything we do as much as possible. And our handbook is hosted on the GitHub. So it's just folders and markdown files that anybody can contribute to. So that also makes some of the discussion go through GitHub, right? Because the handbook ends up being the source of truth around things. We also use Dropbox paper, but mostly because it's a really good tool to collaborate almost in real time. Let's say you're drafting a document, you need help from a couple of people, and you're gonna spend a lot of time over the next couple of days just iterating on this with them. Dropbox paper, similar to Google Docs, actually, it's a really good tool to, to make that collaboration happen. Twist is more of a discussion tool. GitHub is more of a discussion tool also from the communication perspective. So that collaborative editing piece was missing from this toolbox without Dropbox paper for us. Is there any place for real-time chat in the Doist org? Yeah, I mean, Twist does have uh, real-time chat. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, there's two sides to it. There's threads, this is the real hero where we spend most of our time both working and both communicating. So when we make Twist better, we try to work first on the threads and only then on the messages. But also it's where we spend most of our time. But of course, there's there's a room for all of these things. So synchronous communication also exists. When we have an emergency, we're gonna communicate synchronously because we wanna solve it as quickly as possible. Even we don't mind documenting it later, making it open later, right? Like the priorities, we need to address this, for example. So we have uh, a chat room for that. We also try to leverage it to build a little bit of team feeling. Like most teams have a chat room just for the team, but it's mostly for goofing around, basically. It's not for real, you know, kind of like day-to-day -day work. It's not used for tactical purposes. Just, you know, there's a place where you can just be with your teammates, right? Whatever the definition of being is <laughs> when you're fully distributed. Right. You can be present. You yeah. can be present and available. Yes, that's it. You mentioned half the, half the organization is engineering. So I'd love to think about that a bit in terms of the skills for those roles as defined in a framework. Did you spend much time thinking about how much detail you should go into in terms of specific languages? If, if I'm an Android developer, do I need any specific skills around Android development? And if so, at what level? How, how do you think about that? That is a great question. So this is one of the areas where we went a little bit back and forth, and I think our uh, thinking matured over time. 
So we don't have any specificity around programming languages. There was a version that had this, but in the end, we kind of like removed it in favor of talking more about the proficiency that someone uh, has with the code bases that they are working with. And the reason for this is mostly that first, we want something that's applicable to as many engineers as possible, as we were discussing before. But more importantly, this technology lock-in does not make a lot of sense. Like the great engineers will be great engineers today and five years from now working in completely different technologies. So we try to instead model those behaviors that make them great engineers in whatever technology they are working with. There's very few examples that we know of from our discussions of people who were, you know, they were amazing with some technology and they were, they were not great with whatever came after that. So usually people can translate these skills, right? Like they can reuse these skills. So it's not specific to being an Android developer, working with Kotlin or Java, but more of a, what are the behaviors that lead to this? Is it because they seek knowledge? So they are avid readers. Is it because they experiment with new technologies early on and get acquainted with that? Is it because they invest in their knowledge? They attend conferences, they, you know, they read interesting blog posts, they share with their team. Like these are more, these are behaviors that are translatable, so to speak, to other technologies, other areas that are probably more related uh, with their success than how good Java programmers they are in the end. Right. So it's all about the behaviors rather than the specific skills. Although we might talk in terms of skills, you can think about it as the, the behaviors that you exhibit as part of those. Also, if you, if you make things too specific, you limit your uh, creativity and your flexibility in the future. So when you say you focus a lot on being an amazing Python programmer as a backend engineer, you're kind of limiting your future creativity of maybe somebody proposing that you switch technologies for some sensible reason or for a specific project. So. I also think there's an advantage to keeping things in the open because then you let people interpret that in a way that makes a lot of sense for them and their context and the way they see the status of the company. So just having some flexibility built into it, besides focusing, as you said, on the core behaviors is something that I highly recommend if you want to have autonomous teams, which I guess it's another thing where being a fully distributed company does encourage having fully autonomous people as much as possible. Do you feel that leaves any white space perhaps for more junior members of the team when they're trying to get to grips with a new technology or understand what the path to mastery of a specific technology is? How do they get that knowledge? It's a great question. So we don't have this very formalized, how they end up getting this knowledge. I think we generally learn a ton from our teams. Remember the chat room, the team chat room I mentioned before? I would definitely see a conversation such as, you know, where can I learn more about this specific thing, about this technology we use and getting just input from people. I think we don't approach this in a structured manner, but again, we try to think about the fundamentals. So for example, when we hire somebody, let's say a junior person, they will have an explicit mentor for at least three months. And this is a person they will be in contact with every single day, many hours a day to guide them through all of the doest things, so to speak, but also how to help set them up for success. And this also involves, you know, this kind of thing, like where to seek for this very specific knowledge. 
that's a really interesting onboarding process of having that mentor. And you mentioned several hours a day. Is that that sounds quite intensive? But is that sort of how you indoctrinate into the culture and set people up for success? It's quite puzzling, actually, because we are、uh, huge believers of asynchronous communication. So you know, we try to have a couple touch points per day with our teammates, but then work as independently and as autonomously as possible. And it's quite challenging for mentors because they can't really do this. So the, the thing when we onboard somebody is, we really want to make sure they are set up for success. And they will have a lot of questions. They will need a little bit of handholding. That's just expected. And when you're fully distributed like we are, it can feel very isolating, especially if it's the first time you're working remotely. So we do try to make sure they have a mentor with some overlap in terms of time zones, and that the mentor is basically available. It doesn't mean people are chatting all day,、mm-hmm. but the mentor is available. So it's hopefully you know if you ask something, you don't get a reply the next day, which would be normal after kind of like the onboarding,、mm-hmm. but you will get a reply sooner. And hopefully make you feel more integrated within the team and more supported by your mentor as you get accustomed to this way of working. So it's kind of a process. We deviate a little bit from how we usually work and how we believe we should work to make sure we integrate people as best as possible and we support them and set them up for success as they slowly migrate to this more asynchronous way of working that we use. So, because if you think about it, if you've never done it before, if you've always worked in an office nine to five with a bunch of people also working nine to five, and you land in a remote team, right? Like you're sitting in front of your computer, you're alone in your office or something like that. It seems like a ghost town. Like nobody's communicating in real time. You ask something, you don't get a reply back. It can be very isolating. So just. Making sure to support that transition and do it slowly is also an important way to make sure you know that remote works for people as well. It can be quite a shocking experience in the beginning. And by the way, I would never ever go back, but I can see why if you've never done it, why it would be quite shocking to just go from you know zero to one hundred percent distributed on day one. Yep, absolutely. I think most people's idea of the first day at work or the first week at work. Is you turn up, you have lunch with colleagues, you have a bunch of one-on-ones, you get exhausted, you get overstimulated from all the new information, you go out for drinks, and、yeah. I think a lot of people will be thinking, how do I recreate that for a distributed team? Certainly, a progression. We've doubled our headcount this month from two to four people, so it's top of mind、okay. for us. <laughs> Thank you. How we, you know, how we do that, how we make people feel part of the progression family when you're doing that remotely. So that's really interesting to hear that you have that. That sort of three-month ramp-up period. Yeah, yeah, and it's an、uh, like most things, it's a never-ending process. Like something we are not doing right now, but we are also discussing is getting swag to people. For example, on day one, imagine you start day one at Duist, and you get a package in your at your home with some T-shirts and some some、uh, hoodie and stuff like that, just to make you feel. Part of the team, also in the physical sense, like you can touch something,、yep. because again, it's quite puzzling to be onboarded in a distributed team. So, and we're not doing this right now. So, and we're already at almost a hundred people. So, it's coming a little bit late, but this is just to illustrate that this process is never ending. And again, our people ops team has done a has done a terrific job creating an onboarding project into the list for everybody that joins the company that not only focuses on 
relevant information they need to absorb over those first few uh, weeks, but also connecting with other people. Like, you know, something we do is share 10 interesting things about each person who joins the company, you know, right. usually weird things, the weirder, the better. It's kind of like you get to know you. Yeah. <laughs> just connecting with random people in one-on-ones, you know, mimicking that event you were mentioning on the first day, having a bunch of one-on-ones with people. We also try to replicate this, although a bit more spread out over a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, definitely a lot of consideration to this process. There's one last topic I want to touch on around frameworks, and that is around diversity, inclusion, unconscious bias, and I think Doist might be in a almost a league of its own in terms of diversity. When you browse the team page and you see people from such a variety of countries, and there's be so many different cultures, different ways of working, and sort of all of that gets synthesized into a Doist company culture, I would imagine. Were there any sort of cultural considerations as you were creating the framework of like perhaps the way we think about this one skill is coming at it from either an overly Western perspective or an overly male perspective? Or did you intentionally sort of bring in a range of voices to be heard? Yeah. Uh, thank you for the kind words, but I do think we still have a lot of work to do in terms of uh, diversity. So I, I guess there's some companies worse than us, but it's definitely something we chat a lot about, like, how can we increase diversity further? Because we feel like we're still, we're still not there, right? Like there's a lot of work to do on this end. We definitely kept this in mind as we built the framework. Usually, you know, there's a lot of research and, and a lot of uh, interesting insights about things like job postings, right? Like how most are optimized for male audiences in technology. I mean, just from the kind of verbs that they use and the structure of the sentences, there's some some breakdowns that you can find online, interesting breakdowns of how even what looks innocent can affect this. The way we try to combat this is just two things. One, looping people in as much as possible and taking their feedback seriously. So we try to leverage the diversity that we do have to incorporate that feedback into the track and also just be very explicit about it. So... Diversity shouldn't be a hiring goal. It should be a company goal that translates to all of the things we do, including the growth framework. It should also be intentional, right? Just asking the question, is our framework inclusive? Is the structure inclusive? Is the, the wording inclusive? Just going through that thought process, as uncomfortable as it may be, because sometimes it doesn't feel as a, that objective, right? It's hard. It's just hard to put our finger down. But going through this process with other people is very, very important. And I think our wording improved massively from version one to the version we have today. We had feedback, for example, of how there was a very intense language uh, in our first version and how that appeals to more kind of like Caucasian male audiences. You know, that was a bit against our balance core value, but it felt very American. This was something somebody pointed out, like, you know, this very work intense culture that is quite typically American. So we tried to generalize that more and also abide closer to our balance core value. But ultimately, my takeaway here is just to make that an explicit part of the process and look at diversity as something that affects 
basically everything. It's not, I know we talk a lot about hiring uh, and that's step one. And then there's all the other nine steps to having a diverse team. <laughs> and I guess the way you structure the careers within the company, the development plans from people, that also needs to take into account the different perspectives and the, you know, the different cultures. And bringing people into this process and just incorporating their feedback is a really great way to do it. Right. So it's almost like you have the tools within the company by soliciting that feedback, by being intentional of asking for feedback around the wording, around the point of view that, that things have been written from. And you can use that to improve the quality and the fairness of what you create. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's even the subtle things <clears throat> like the um, version one, two and three. So the three major versions we had of the, the career paths were basically done on Dropbox paper. We discussed tooling before, right? But the key here is that when they were shared with people uh, as they were being built, everybody had edit access, everybody had comment access. So it, it was not like being done in isolation or read only for some people. It was there out in the open and ready for people to contribute. And this happened actually quite a lot. I remember the first round of feedback, the first formal round of feedback where Mitch and the people up team said, you know, please go in and dissect everything you see. I remember going in and my browser was slowing down just by the sheer amount of feedback there was on just one, you know, three page document. It was quite insane, but it's also the result you want, right? Like just having all of these voices and people invested into making something better. That's really when we get the, the best results out of anything. So for sure, working transparently, being intentional about some of these goals of inclusion and diversity is definitely key to making a successful career path framework. The one parting thought related with this is that I think sometimes we might forget this, but these frameworks, they exist to support the people above everything else. You might have other goals. You might have a goal to model what you consider to be optimal behavior. You might have a goal of aligning expectations and how people see each other. We might have all of these goals on the table, but ultimately they exist to support the people, right? To give them tools to improve in a way that's compatible with their team and their company. And so we need to be pro people from day one, because ultimately if you have the best framework in the world, but the buy-in from the team itself is low or zero, then it's not going to get anywhere. People will just ignore it or misuse it. And ultimately, that's going to defeat the purpose, right? Like it's not supporting people. It's just creating chaos. So just thinking about that early on and being open to changing your mind. If you're a leader in a company, you're building these frameworks, you have some strong beliefs, but maybe you won't be able to push all of them onto the team, right? So just making that a collaborative process that is pro people, I think it's really, really important to build something that's useful and fits the purpose. That is a wonderful note to end on. Frameworks to be pro people and to support the team. Gonzalo, thank yeah. you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. There's at least two or three topics that I could spend another hour talking about, but we won't. We'll wrap it up there. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you or find out more about Doist? So um, for me personally, the place where I'm the most active is on Twitter. You will find me on other places such as LinkedIn, but honestly, I don't really use it. Uh, I use Twitter on a regular basis and that's it. As for Doist, we blog about the things we do. 
<clears throat> we try to be also transparent in that sense. And we have our own blog. We call it Ambition and Balance. It's the name of the core value we discussed before. And I guess we can have the links somewhere Absolutely. in the show notes. But yep. definitely to learn more about us, going to our blog is uh, one of the best ways. Another thing I want to mention, one final thing, is the Twist Remote Guides. So we have some guides to working remotely that's kind of like take into account all of the things we learned and best practices we want to share. And this can also be helpful for people just exploring remote for the first time and figuring things out. So to sum up, talking to me on Twitter, best way, and finding more about the things we do via our blog and these uh, remote guides. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. And there we have it. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to check out Progression, you can just head to progressionapp.com and you can start your free trial from there. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do subscribe. We've got a great lineup of guests coming up over the next few months. I think you're really going to enjoy some of the interviews. And give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. That really helps to spread the word. Until next time, see ya!